0: Ain't going to burn ourselves out no more. Ain't going to burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side. Plus all the folks at Fried the Burnout Podcast with Kate Donovan. Fried the Burnout Podcast. Hello, Fried fam. Sometimes we get to an episode a weird way. Sometimes I have things planned for ages. Sometimes you've been asking about something that I want to answer, so I search out a particular expert. And sometimes I stumble across something from someone that I trust that I think, "Mm, we really need to talk about that. And we are going to be doing that today with my friend, Hannah Pryor, PCC. What's PCC?
1: Professional Certified Coach. Oh, I like it. Got it. So
0: Hannah Pryor, PCC, is a highly sought-after workplace performance expert and an award-winning two-time TEDx and global keynote speaker, executive facilitator, and coach. Her clients call her their, quote, secret weapon for impossible change, an honor that she wears proudly. She's known for her science-backed approach to improving the performance habits and actions of hungry high achievers in her fun, no-nonsense, no-jargon way to move them from their first level of success to their next one. Her highly anticipated book, Good Awkward, published on September 26th and is available, and we will dig into parts of her book today, which I'm very excited about. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thank
1: you so much for having me. I'm so glad to have finally gotten to spend this time with you. I know, ditto.
0: The post that started this conversation was not about your book, but about an epiphany that you had one morning and decided to write on LinkedIn Mm -hmm. about using AI to reduce burnout. Now, for context, recently we had Owen Fitzpatrick, also our fellow chapter member on the podcast. Yeah. And he talked about brain prompting. So using mm. the way that we talk to chat GPT to talk to our own brains so that we're searching for solutions in a more productive way, which was absolutely fabulous. I'll link that in the show notes, you guys, the, to that episode, if you want to check it out. It was wonderful. So I was I had just recorded that episode with him. And then I came across your post and I was like, we need to get ahead of this conversation about how AI and burnout interact, you do all the productivity, you do all the hungry high achiever stuff. Where? What are you thinking about? To Talk to me, talk me through this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, I won't claim to be the AI expert. We certainly have other friends that do this, but what I will claim to be is the person who doesn't like to waste time,
0: mm-hmm. who
1: has two kids that are in- eighth and sixth grade, respectively, who would like my attention and don't want mom working till eight o'clock. And I am someone who likes to juggle a lot and have a lot on my plate. And as anybody who's joined an entrepreneurial journey in the last decade will attest to, scaling ourselves feels like the toughest battle to win of all time. And so where my interest in AI began was honestly pretty self-serving. How do I use this thing that everybody keeps talking about to make my life easier. I I need some help in juggling all these variety of things. And again, I'm just going to be very selfish and vulnerable here. I was like, I don't have time to train somebody who may or may not get me. It was coming from a very self-serving place about, let me try the robot first, because if I don't like it, I won't hurt their feelings if I have to fire them or it doesn't work out. So that's First began and and I heard someone once refer to, I think it was Kevin Kelly, who's a brilliant tech mind, refer to the use of certain AI technologies as having a UPI, a universal personal intern. And mm-hmm. my ears went, ding! That's what I need. I need a universal personal intern.
0: And so that's where the deep dive began. Yeah. I now I want one.
1: <laughs> Let me tell you. The eyes are amazing. And there's a learning curve right of figuring yeah. out how to use them. And I like to think of myself as someone who's generally technologically savvy and can figure things out. But like most of these emerging technologies, learning how to talk to them influences what you get in return. And so there was a lot that people would start to talk about with industry research and data mining, and I'm like, okay, all of that sounds good, but I had to go one layer simpler, which is what was I already doing? Not a new activity to add to my plate, but what was I already doing that it could help me simplify? So the first thing that convinced me of its powers was whenever I would have an intake call with a client or a meeting with a client, one of the things I pride myself in is keeping things sticky. And that obviously can take a variety of forms. But for me, it was taking some notes and then sending them to the client afterwards saying, here's just a summary of what we discussed, or here are a few themes of what we discussed. So I would be typing almost like a doctor, really be typing and nodding as people are talking to me. And someone said to me, you can record these meetings. And typically we do on zoom and things, take the transcript, feed it to AI and say, Hey, create a summary with six to 10 bullet points of the major themes and takeaways from this session. And it was spot on, spot on. And I was like, what, What?" I, I massaged some words. I made it my own, but that was the first exercise in why am I doing these things manually? when the the technology can help us. It saves minutes, hours over the course of a week. So that's just one example.
0: I love that so much because that's something that can be used by entrepreneurs. It could be used by office workers. You have a meeting and there's eight different people talking and you're maybe already a little bit burnt out and your attention span isn't what it was and you just can't figure it out. This is a great way. Get the transcript from your call. Make sure that you can get those bullet points done for you so that you don't have to use as much the brain power that you don't have available right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that. And I love the choice of the word brain power because that's another area where I think people underestimate how it can help be this spark in your brain. So another favorite usage that came up a lot from my writing of the book was I love metaphors do naughty things for a good metaphor, or a good analogy, right? I live for them. I just think that they are such a beautiful way to accelerate someone's thinking or to create an insight rather than going into a long academic explanation. And so in the process of writing the book, as often as I could without overdoing it, I tried to think of what is a metaphor for this feeling, this phenomenon, this situation I'm trying to explain. And sometimes again, when you're staring at your content, you're staring at your business for too long, that stuff becomes hard to get at, right? Your brain is tired especially it's past two o'clock. That that day is getting away from me. My metaphor creativity is gone. And so I would turn to chat GPT. I would turn to Claude.ai and say, I'm trying to find a clever, creative visual metaphor for this idea. Can you help me think of five examples? And four of them may be things I didn't use, but the fifth one, I'd be like, oh, Good. So something that ended up in the book was we were talking about awkwardness and how what the point I was trying to make was some things are more desirable because of their lack of perfection because they're a little raw and so if, there were some examples that were obvious like cracks in pottery some things we heard before but then it came up with artisanal bread mm. and it's the bumps and the sort of raw imperfection of it the fact that it's sometimes a little brown on this side a little lighter on this side. That makes it desirable, that makes it something that we want and crave. And I thought, God, that's perfect. I just want my clients to be bumpy bread. That's it. <laughs> but I wouldn't have thought of that on my own at three in the afternoon. And that was something that AI helped create just by feeding it the right prompts.
0: I love it. And there was this came up in an office hours call for Fried a few months ago. A creative was saying, I just can't get started. I need to get started on this book. I can't get started. I have this idea, but I can't. My brain isn't working right. And I said, throw it into AI and have it get it started for you. You might not use anything it says, but as soon as you agree or disagree with what it produces, you'll know what you're thinking.
1: Mm, I love that. I love that. I don't know if you've ever heard this idea of when you're faced with a decision, a binary decision, should I or should I not, right? I heard someone once say, flip a coin, and it's not what shows up. It's how you feel about what shows up. Exactly. What is your emotional reaction? I think what you're describing is much of the same. Whatever it prompts in you is the spark, is the catalyst for you to go a little deeper and explore. There's something here. What is that something? Can Can I run with it?
0: And it allows you to have a lot of people that have ADHD do really well with body doubling, right? With being Mm -hmm. in the same room as someone else, just doing work, no one speaking, just being there. That to me is something that AI can almost do because Mm -hmm. you can bounce ideas once in a while just to see. I type into it all the time. I'm bad at prompting. And it still sparks me to be like, oh, that's not what I was saying. Or that's exactly what I was saying. And I can say it better than that. Or that's exactly what I was saying. And that's better than what I thought of. All those things. To yeah, what's
1: interesting is that, yeah, what's interesting is when you're with a thought partner, sometimes it depends on the quality of the th- thought partner that's with you, what you get back. Yeah. What's interesting about AI is, it's going to respond to you regardless, right? It doesn't get to choose to ignore you. It doesn't get to choose to tell you dumb idea. It's going to respond to you regardless. And so whatever it gives you, I love the point that you just made. It's even if there's a sliver of something that is useful, it will help you continue the train of thought versus stopping in its tracks. In my opinion, it's the perfect improv partner. It is Mm. constantly... Yes. And because it doesn't really know how to tell you no, if you ask it something again, inside of its capabilities, it will give you something in response. And so it lets you take that train of thought much further than you may go alone or even with an intelligent friend.
0: Yeah. I will say as a warning, you do have to check things sometimes because I did use it. I needed to have 25 peer reviewed research articles for a paper I was writing for finishing up school earlier this year. And they spit out 25 and half of them never existed. <laughs> yes.
1: I found this to be true through the book. I remember looking for certain stories and it would give me a story and I would say, Oh, can you please point me to that article or that research? And they're like, this is a fictionalized story based on an event that could have happened. And i was like, excuse me. So now you have to say things like, please provide a true verifiable historical example of blah, blah, blah. So you do have to be very specific in your language, but like anything, it's learning, but so are we. We're learning how to work with it. I think that's the opportunity for us.
0: One of the things that I think is best about this specificity that's necessary for AI is that those of us that have a strong tendency to burn out are usually so focused on other people that we often don't know what we want. So we don't Mm -hmm. ask for things because we don't know what we want. And with AI, if you don't tell it very clearly what you want, you're not going to get the result that you need. So to me, using AI when you're burnt out is like practicing asking for what you want in a zero stakes game.
1: Mm, I love that. I never thought of it that way, but that's true, right? It's practicing using your voice in different ways and making different requests and no one's judging you for the nature of your request for the way that you asked it. It is a brilliant way to get in reps for what you want. I love that. I never thought of it that way, but I love that.
0: And if you don't get the result that you're looking for, that might lead to you looking at the thing you were asking for and realizing that you weren't as clear as you thought you were. So one of the things that I had Heather Hansen on recently, and she was talking about mastering the art of the ask, and this understanding what it is you actually want is so different from assuming other people understand what you want when you say something. One of the things we talk about a lot here on Friday is I don't believe in hinting. You don't say, oh, it's chilly in here. You either say, do you have a coat, a jacket, a sweater, or can we turn up the heat? Ask for the thing you want directly. You can't hint at AI because you're not going to get the results that you want. So I think this like really almost forceful practice of being very clear with what you're looking for is really useful. It's also helped me. I'm very bad. Apologies to every graphic designer who has ever existed (laughs) and had to work with me. I'm really bad at describing what it is that I want. I don't have the right vocabulary. I don't always, I sometimes have a vision, but don't know how to explain what it is. Practicing it with AI Mm -hmm. helps to clarify it because you look at what it produces, some of even the image AI, and you're like, oh, that's not what I thought I said. Uh Yeah, I love that
1: because I share that with you. I don't consider myself, this is not me, having limiting beliefs or no. putting myself in a box. This is just reality. I'm not a particularly visual thinker. My, yeah. my brain does not think in images or maps or th- that type of contextual model. It doesn't naturally do it. Once I see one, I can get a lot of value from it and I can yes. say, yes, that really helps clarify. But for me to come up with those things on my own is challenging. So I actually hadn't thought of this since a few months ago when I was doing it, but for the book... I knew I did not require visuals, but I know that other people are visual thinkers. And for them, certain contextual models, certain images would help them understand a concept. Mm-hmm. And so I did want beautiful images in the book because of the way I think. I had no idea what those should be. So I asked AI. I would say, here's the topic that I'm trying to convey, or here's the idea that I'm trying to convey. Can you please help create five visual ideas or models that would help? explain this idea and in text not necessarily in images but in text they would give me examples and so there's an example early in the book where I want someone the idea was that we look at ourselves very differently because we see almost like a crack in the veneer right there's something that we're seeing is wrong and broken versus what other people see and they actually helped articulate this sort of cracked mirror vision, right? There's somebody looking at you from over here. You look fine. Then you're looking at yourself in this mirror and you look disjointed because there's a crack in the mirror. But it was so detailed in the way it described it that I was able to literally take that, give it to my graphic designer, my my illustrator and say, I'd love something that looks like this. And I wonder if I could even pull it up for you. It it turned out it was
0: exactly what I needed.
1: But I don't think my brain could have explained that at all in the way that this. AI was able to come up with it.
0: So what I'm what I want you guys to hear as you listen to this is that Any limitations, not maybe not any, that's that might be a little bit extreme, but a lot of the limitations that you may feel in your brain due to burnout, ADHD, whatever it happens to be, or some sort of like self proclaimed lack of creativity, or some, like you said, it's not a limiting belief. I I don't know how to describe things in pictures. It's just not, I don't know how. So if there is a limit somewhere, whether it's diagnosable or just natural and normal. AI is a way around that limitation.
1: Yeah. And I'll maybe add one additional layer to this. I think sometimes, despite knowing all of this, despite us saying all of this, it's a new technology and therefore brings up for some people a fear, a hesitance, right? I've always done it X way. This is new. This is different. This is at odds with, and what I would encourage is, and this is advice I give to all my coaching clients about everything, Place small bets. No one is saying you need to become a chat GPT super user tomorrow. I encourage you to go in and ask it a question. Right? Ask it a question. Just get a little bit of a flavor of it. Maybe a question a day, right? I'm not saying you need to go use it for all the things starting tomorrow. But ultimately, this feels a bit like decades ago where there's certain things where you know, early internet users were resistant, yeah. early cell phone users were resistant, yeah. and ultimately this technology is not going away. So I think if we can slowly push through our fears around what it represents and just dabble and see what is possible, it'll create just more opportunity to have conversations about the way that we use it. Nobody needs to use it the same, but no. I think it, we owe it to ourselves to to play at least.
0: I, yes, play, Absolutely. I want to move on to the next part, because there's so much good in here. Since I started following you, the message has been clear that awkward is acceptable and even beneficial. And so your book that just came out is titled Good Awkward,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and I want to really dig into how you can help people embrace their awkwardness. My husband and I call this funk. Like we everybody in our life has some if somebody doesn't have the funk to them, some sort of yeah. some weird thing about them, they're probably yeah. not going to be our friends long term. It can be anything. It could be like, I'm super cheap about t-shirts is a weird enough funk to be like, you're such a weirdo. I love it. We have a thing about that. We've talked about this for years, but can we dig into embracing ourselves? No, I'm not going to talk about it. I'm going to let you talk about it. (laughs) I'd
1: be happy to talk about it. This podcast is about burnout. It's about the title is fried. And so I'm going to do my best to give some context for this, but also explain why to the listeners of this podcast, this is really important as a a remedy to some of these issues that we face in the workplace. So quick working definition, just for the spirit of this conversation, if you go into the dictionaries, there's a variety of definitions of awkwardness, but for the context of this conversation, awkwardness is a social emotion, meaning typically if we're in the kitchen and we sing the words wrong to our favorite song, We feel a little silly about it. If no one is there to see it, we don't really feel awkward. But if somebody is there and they're like, that's when awkwardness exists. So it's a social emotion. It is also an emotion of discomfort. I will not claim that feeling awkward feels good in that exact moment. And awkwardness is an emotion that we tend to feel when we find ourselves between two selves. We find ourselves between the version that we believe ourselves to be, the who we believe is our true self. And the version that in that moment, other people see on display. Mm -hmm. So the person that they see is at odds with the person that we think we are. For a moment in that space, we feel awkward. Our internal identity doesn't match that external reality. And so in the spirit of this conversation, when we think about the role awkwardness plays, one reason that many. performers struggle with either working towards burnout or experiencing burnout is specific to a variety of different areas but one of the areas that contributes to this is there's been a very strong push for high achievers to show up a certain way be a certain way operate at a certain level and there's an entire chapter in the book where i talk about the dangers of catering and performance and when we cater to others expectations And we perform to meet those expectations. How it exhausts us, and I know you've talked about this on the podcast before. It makes us want to fall into bed at the end of the day. When we are trying to avoid awkwardness, when we are trying to eliminate it, that is literally putting us in the direction of performing and catering because you cannot eliminate it. To avoid awkwardness is to eliminate all uncertainty in life, and we can't. My assertion is not: Do we avoid it? Do we eliminate it? It's how. We learn to stay in that in-between space, between the version that we think we are and the version that sometimes other people are going to see. It's living there that becomes our new growth edge.
0: a couple of ways that we talk about this around here you're using the word performance and that that came up in a recent episode and we also talked to ruth Rathblatt recently about hiding and unhiding this is a similar sort of space and here the word that my listeners hear from me most frequently and then therefore use most frequently is pretzeling yourself filling mm-hmm. yourself into somebody else's expectations, or and there's only so yeah. many bends you can make. You can only fold a paper what seven times or something like isn't there some sort of weird mm-hmm. of number? Mm-hmm. Yeah. fold a paper. You can only fold a paper right. so many times. It's literally impossible to fold it another time. And mm-hmm. the, this performance, this avoidance of awkwardness, is like folding yourself over and over again. But at some point, you cannot fold yourself again. Like you are out of folds. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter how big the paper is. It doesn't matter how big your personality is. You're not going to get past the, I don't, I now have to look up how many folds it is, seven or eight or something. I think it
1: is seven. I feel like I've read this somewhere too. Right.
0: I remember trying it as a kid. Um, the, always the experimental scientists in my life, I'm always trying things out. So I probably did actually try and fold a newspaper as a kid. How do we, what is the question that I want to ask? This space is uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And how can we play with it gently to allow it in over time? I think one of the things that really opened my eyes in my own world for this is doing a podcast. I was petrified to have a podcast for a very long time. Not because I didn't think that I knew people that had really great things to say, not that it, because I didn't think that I had mm-hmm. things to say, but because once you say them and they're like out there, they're out, mm-hmm. like it's out there, but yeah, you can't live
1: forever. Through,
0: yeah, exactly. It's like living its life is same reason. I was petrified to release my book. Like now it's yeah. there and I've grown since and it's, I'm going to change my opinion and people are going to think that I always think that and uh, all of the, yeah. There's just so much fear around um, putting yourself out there like that. But after doing the podcast, God, we're in, we're past year four at this point. Mm. I'm just a little weird sometimes, and I it just yeah. it is what it is. Our unofficial hashtag is pee when you gotta pee because things are weird it. around here, and it's fine. But it took me probably a hundred episodes to be myself here.
1: And and you're not alone in that experience. I think I want to first validate and normalize. We do not live in a world that celebrates bumpy edges as much as we should. I, I have a section in the book where I talk about, if you look back to ancient cultures and Greek mythology and you know Stoicism and old world religions, there was not just a tolerance for, but appreciation for and reverence for adversity, bumps, there's an investor named Sahil Bloom. I love the way he refers to it. He says, and a bump filled life is a textured life. Mm. So years ago, the people who had texture, who have dealt with something, who are a little different, who had standout features, who did things differently, they were revered, right? That was something that was celebrated. And then we've moved into this modern era where not only for a period of time, at least, have these things been less celebrated, For a period of time, we really over-indexed on filtering everything, blurring everything, curating everything. God, AI makes it look like I have no nose, zero zits, none of it. We've over-indexed on that. And I think the one beautiful thing that came from a very difficult season of the pandemic that globally we all had to endure was we all had to calibrate quickly to this new life. Most of us didn't have a chance to make everything look perfect. We got on Zoom and... There's an interview in the book where uh, a senior leader that I had talked to was talking about her CEO, who they would say, he's super buttoned up, he's super stiff, he never smiles, he's always got his like game face on, right? A performer. Yeah. He knows how to perform the role of leader. And then the first Zoom call that was an all-hands meeting, he didn't have a chance to curate his Zoom background. He was sitting at the kitchen table. They didn't have an office in their apartment. And so he was sitting at the kitchen table Daughter pulling on his sleeve. Dog is barking in the background. He's flustered. He's pulling at his collar. And she said, we loved him. Yeah, We loved him. For the first time ever, we were like, thank God, right? We thought this dude didn't even burp or pass gas ever, right? He has no bumpy edges that ever stick out. And you realize this is pushing us back towards a humanity that people so deeply crave. And so I love whether we want to call it finding our weird, whether we wanna call it embracing our bumpy edges, whether we wanna call it staying in a space longer than we want to, but know that we need to, right? All of these things are important muscles to build in a world that keeps trying to optimize us for smoothness. We actually have to keep over-intentionalizing and over-indexing on these activities because the world he was trying to make everything friction-free. And so it's all the more difficult for us to show up this way. It takes just a new level of
0: intention. I loved that sentence. I sat with it for a minute. <laughs> this The world is trying to optimize us. Yeah. Something that I think is fascinating about this is that the HBR, that's Harvard Business Review for all the non-nerds in the room, <laughs> Do we have non-nerds in the room? (laughs) Probably (laughs) not. Probably not. There's an HBR series on emotional well-being. And the books are resilience, mindfulness, influence, happiness, authenticity, et cetera. It's like a, a, a series of five or six. And the resilience one is, they're all short, those like little short HBR books. Yeah. The resilience one is really short and in one of the sections of it it says that there are seven things that you need in order to be resilient. And one of the things that I really dove into a lot for a keynote that I did last year in oh, Tampa was mm-hmm. this idea of embracing your uniqueness, not mm-hmm. because it makes you resilient just because you're unique, but because and I want everybody to listen to this really carefully. When people know the things that make you unique, the things that make you stand out, they are more likely to help you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you are plain Jane blends in perfectly optimized and filtered, there is a natural assumption that happens that says this person doesn't need anything. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing for people to hook their appreciation into. Because there are no bumps. Yeah. There's nothing very easy to to become
1: forgettable.
0: Yes. And Mm so by embracing your weirdness, your uniqueness, your awkwardness, your funk, what, like you said, whatever you want to call it, you open yourself up to being more receptive to having people support you because resilience isn't only about having your own internal resilience, but it's about tapping into the resources, i.e. people that you have available to you. And people are more likely to help you if you're weird.
1: Yeah, I love that. And so I'm going to, I'm going to yes and this because I I love that. And I think that's such an important message for everyone to to latch on to. And I think there are some people who may, I think everyone's got their weird, right? Everyone has their thing that they nerd out over. Mine are Cadbury cream eggs. Ask me about it if you're curious, but everybody's got their thing. Where I think there's also a distinction that's worth making is sometimes people hear the title of the book or they hear the word and they think of it purely as a trait. I am awkward. I feel like if you were to describe me, I would call myself socially awkward, right? That Mm. is who I am. And one of the distinctions that I want to be very clear on is even if you don't identify as such, even if you don't think of myself as, hey, I'm someone who's awkward, You can also look at it. That's a trait. You can also look at the state of awkwardness, which could be, man, I just had a really awkward conversation, or I have to have a really awkward negotiation. This leader just gave a very awkward presentation. Those are less statements of fact of here's who I am Mm
0: -hmm. and more
1: transient feelings that pass. Now, one important thing that I think helps us embrace these things is if you can call yourself awkward and own that and feel good about it, great. Fine. I'm, I'm here for you. I'm your biggest cheerleader. There's plenty of people who don't claim that title of themselves as a trait in a positive way. For them, they use it as a crutch. They use it as a way to avoid going to the networking event. They use it as a reason to avoid raising their hand in the meeting. I'm awkward. I don't want to give that presentation. For those folks, I want you to hear this. Using the word awkward as an identity is a limiting belief that will not serve you because the truth is by definition awkwardness is subjective. There's no such thing as a factually awkward person. It is up to another person or ourselves to deem them. There is no factually awkward person. So by calling yourself awkward or by calling someone else awkward, that is a subjective opinion. That is not a statement of fact. And so if you are trying to Stop hiding behind that descriptor and start taking more risks and chances. I just want to encourage you to also be careful with the language, right? Could be, yeah. I felt really awkward in that setting. I feel really awkward following that conversation. But when you use those labels in a way that doesn't feel empowering, right? And the way you use it, I love the way you use it. It's very empowering. You're like I own my weird, I own my awkward. I'm like, get after it, girl. But there's a whole host of people who don't use it that way. Yeah, and for yeah. those folks, I want to encourage you to Choose your language because it is not a statement of fact. And if you believe it to be, it is hindering your opportunity to move through it in a productive way.
0: I want you to, I want to think about, do we have examples of people or situations or things that like, Cameron Diaz has a funny laugh and like her mm-hmm. legs are so long and they almost collapse on each other when she walks and she, and <laughs> we love her. Like, she's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Are there examples of things like that are like, don't necessarily, they can be transient or not, it doesn't matter, but examples of things so that people can like start to tap into what might be a little bit special about me. What are some situations where I might find that awkwardness and learn to be okay with it? So I think like both sides, both trait and state. Sure. Let me also maybe make this one
1: distinction. Sometimes we can find our, our awkward edges as something that is embedded in us, something that we love, something that we nerd out over. Again, sometimes by virtue of the definition, awkwardness can be how we respond to planned moments. So I'll give you a perfect example. My opening story in the book is about Jennifer Lawrence, who on paper is gorgeous. She has gobs of money in the bank. She's one of the most high-paid actresses. She won every award under the sun and MTV movie awards were best kisser. I'm like, come on, right? This woman has everything going for her. It's been done, there's yougov.org does surveys across all sorts of topics, including people. And all of these things historically, according to social psychology and social science should make most of us feel at worst some hatred towards her, at best, a bit threatened by her because all of her seeming perfection should trigger many of our insecurities and inadequacies. When somebody seems so perfect, you're like, oh, I'll never be like that. But yet, statistically, most of us don't hate Jennifer Lawrence. Why? Because she's awkward, because she trips over her dress on the way to the Oscars, because she constantly admits that she says the wrong thing Because she snorts when she laughs because in an interview with Jimmy Fallon, she literally bumps herself on the walk up and you're like, oh my God, thank God. Right. And so this is an example of someone who theoretically has it all quote unquote together, but by just letting these edges shine, by not buffing them away, she creates this immediate likability, this immediate relatability. And there's actually a term in... Social science called the pratfall effect when somebody seems very competent ultra smart ultra qualified and they make a little blunder or a misstep it actually makes them more likable because it knocks them off the proverbial pedestal we put them on so i think my, my response to your question is we don't even need to look so hard for these things i think if you are someone who generally is respected at work who is smart who does a good job and you screw up a little bit, you spill the coffee on your lap, you trip on the way to the coffee machine, you say the wrong thing on Zoom, you burp when you weren't on mute, right? These things, believe it or not, increase your likability. The key is to just own it. The key is to not run from it because the avoidance of awkward increases awkward. It's actually to say, whoop, that was awkward, right? Or whoop, that was a cringe, or to be able to laugh at yourself, which takes practice. But staying with that actually has the adverse effect counterintuitively it makes you more likable so you don't even have to go hunting just stay in those human moments a little bit longer
0: mike goldman mm-hmm. so we were on a, a board meeting for nsa nyc and mm-hmm. he, he was eating or doing something else and took himself off video but didn't take himself off mute mm-hmm. and his wife said something and he was like "Ah, oh, i just have to sit through this boring meeting <laughs> We I, have ex- I have an example like that in my book too. You're like, oh, but it's still one of the funniest moments. We're still laughing about it. We're still connecting over it, and it was this was eight or nine months ago. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'll
1: share one of my one of my personal favorite stories. That one just reminded me of from the book. Is I remember, following the pandemic when we started convening in person again. I had one of my first client meetings for a really big like multi month training program I was looking to do for a company. so I I met this client for the first time, this leader. I gave him 15 minutes of my finest sales pitching. I was in sales for 14 years. Your girl knows how to sell, right? So I am crushing it in my head. I am crushing it. And he throws his hand up like this. And I was like, hell yeah. So I give him a high five, right? So I'm holding my hand up in front of me. I give him a high five. And he goes, I was was holding my hand up because I was trying to tell you to stop. And I was like, oh my God. And I'm literally thinking to myself, you have forgotten how to human, you went into a pandemic, you forgot how to human like what the hell, Hannah, really, like, normal, henna would have read that cue correctly. But like any social muscle that doesn't get practice, which awkward tolerance, I assert is a social muscle. That muscle was not in practice, because of what we just all went through. And so I forgot how to read cues, I wasn't practicing reading human cues, human gestures, eyes, body language. And so I misread it. And it was incredibly awkward but in that moment I named it and I was like wow that is cringy that is really awkward I'm a bit mortified in that moment that ability to name it immediately both of our shoulders fell he started laughing and he's okay gotta admit that response made me like you more and it actually had again that the counterintuitive effect of making me appear more confident that I was able to own it so readily rather than sitting there in flushed embarrassment. So this is the biggest counterintuitive truth of the book is leaning in and running towards is actually the key to, quote unquote, awkward confidence. Trying to run from it and eliminate it is a fool's errand. Life has too much uncertainty for it to ever completely go away.
0: And you always know what it looks like when somebody is trying to cover it up and it never works. No. It's it's, like you said, it just makes it more awkward. It just makes everyone. it strange. Yes. Just, let's yeah. just go with it. I cannot throw. I can't throw. I throw I like, a <laughs> like a T-Rex, like straight down at the ground. And every time I do it, my husband is like, did your father never take you into the backyard <laughs> to toss a ball? And I'm like, clearly not because mm-hmm. I can't do this. But it is something that I will do in front of people, even though I can't do it because it's funny.
1: Sure, yeah. And again, there's always a mixed bag, right? I'm not great at throwing. I really can't bowl, like I'm a terrible bowler. And so is there a little bit of it that, you know, a self-sacrificial limiting belief where I'm a bad bowler and I suck as I naturally will, then I won't have to be made fun of about it. Sure, there's a little bit of that, but there is also a little bit of, I just don't take it that seriously. I could feel awkward about it. I could feel embarrassed about it or I could make a choice, which is there's plenty of things to feel awkward about. This doesn't have to be one of them,
0: right? This just doesn't have to be it. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. What is, what would be... You have somebody in front of you right now. Mm -hmm. They are climbing out of burnout. They have been masking and hiding and performing for years. What's like step number one to getting awkward?
1: Yes. So I love, and I thought about this a lot before we met today, which is the relationship between awkwardness and burnout. And so my first step would be to slow down long enough to build awareness around how much performing and catering in a given day at work. And so just definitionally, for those who haven't listened to the previous episodes where you touched on this, catering to others' expectations means putting on a version of yourself that you think they expect of you, right? The kind of language, the way you describe something, the way you present, you're putting on a version that is intended to be palatable socially to the person that you're interacting with instead of the way that you may prefer to show up, your more organic, authentic version, that will include stumbles, fumbles, tripping over your words and missteps. So first step is just to explore how much time do you spend in that Mm -hmm. catering and performance space? Now that said, I don't wanna oversimplify, impression management is real, right? So I'm not suggesting that if you are more comfortable in a hoodie, That you go to the job interview in that and not a suit right impression management does matter in certain contexts but the data supports that on an ongoing basis there is actually much more benefit to workplace performance to be your authentic self stumbles fumbles and all one of my favorite studies from the book was harvard behavioral scientist francesca gino and her team did a study of 166 entrepreneurs where they had a pitch contest to investors they were pitching for funding And what they found was that those who catered to others' expectations, so imagine Shark Tank, those who were trying to tell the sharks what they wanted to hear based on what they thought they would want, were three times less likely to get chosen for the funding than those who went in just raw, honest, I'm not sure if this is what you wanna hear, but I'm just gonna be passionate about it, I'm gonna give you what I know, I might get this wrong, I might misstep, but here it is. Those folks are three times more likely To get the funding so not only will performing and catering exhaust you help you reach that burnout state faster it's also less effective it also has a high impact on your performance so again understanding impressions matter and understanding there's a level of competence that needs to be exhibited in addition and tandem this level of performance is one contributor to the fact that people reach the end of their rope a lot faster than they need to. So really putting some analysis and some awareness behind that, I think is the first critical step.
0: I love that. I was just watching rerun episodes of Project Runway with my mom Mm -hmm. last Mm -hmm. night. And one of the designers, one of the feedback to her was, you gave us what you thought we wanted, but we wanted you. Mm. Yeah. You held back. And it's so scary to give people us, because when we give yeah.
1: people us, they might reject it. They might not like it. And so some of the give... time
0: they're guaranteed to reject it. If right. You're guaranteed to meet the rejection sometimes, no matter right. what.
1: And this brings a, an interesting connection to when we think about burnout and we think about difficult emotions, oftentimes in the conversation about awkwardness, people ask about awkwardness versus vulnerability, right? Mm-hmm. Both of which are taxing emotions of discomfort that we sometimes endure at work and so where i encourage people to see the distinction is vulnerability is a little higher on the scale of emotional exposure
0: Mm.
1: so to be vulnerable regularly at work if you are a leader and you are going through massive transition in your organization and you need to access a raw authentic vulnerability over and over that can be very taxing that's a lot of emotional exposure and leaders who can do that well are masterful and brilliant. And I encourage every leader to be able to tap into an authentic vulnerability. But unfortunately, what we see all too often is what we talked about before, which is performative vulnerability. In the book, we call it faux vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability. Mm Vulnerability. And when we do that, everyone can feel it. Everyone feels even less seen and heard. And so when we think about awkwardness, I like to think of it as a stepping stone True vulnerability, right? If you're not able to get to that emotional place of true emotional exposure, the middle step that I'd like for you to start with first is as a leader, this feels awkward to admit, but I don't know what to say right here. Start there. Start there. Don't try to reach for a vulnerability that does not yet feel accessible to you. Start with an awkward admission that feels a little lighter on the emotional exposure and work your way up. But sometimes when we do that reach, it has. Overreaching consequences, not just on their own mental well being and their own performance, but everybody that they serve. And that's not helpful for anybody's workplace well being.
0: So I know there's a few hundred people right now that are like, yeah, but I need to buy your book right now. So <laughs> where can they find it?
1: Oh, thank you. It is everywhere where books are sold. I feel like that's the tagline, right? Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, if you prefer indie bookshop. It's available at all the major retailers and goodawkward.com is the site that just gives a little bit more context and information about it. But I'm, I'm really proud of it. It's not just another get comfortable being uncomfortable. I promise it is a fresh take on an emotion that we all feel. And I hope that anyone who reads it has a bunch of aha moments about the way it shows up for them at
0: work. I can't wait to hear what your feedback is around this topic in the Facebook group. So today we covered both how you can use AI to take some things off your plate and make your life easier, and how you can embrace some traits and states of awkwardness in order to live easier, really. (laughs) At the end of the day, it's just live easier. Fried fam, one of the most important and most frequent things that we say around here is that small steps are the best steps small steps. I didn't know that we were going into this today, coming out with a small step toward vulnerability Mm -hmm. and vulnerability is something that is really hard to, when you're somebody who burns out, the vulnerability is my best friend once told me that she didn't know who I was. Mm. She said, you know, everything about me. I don't know anything about you. And i was like i tell you everything she was like not really it took me like two years to get to the point where i could talk to her vulnerability is not something that most of us are really great at it's one of the reasons that we end up here and Mm -hmm. taking a step towards vulnerability if you're just trying to jump into vulnerability when you're not ready it becomes impossible So in the spirit of small steps that we love to embrace around here, I really want you to take to heart that if vulnerability is like not available to you right now, you can step into transient states of awkwardness to get yourself a little bit closer. Hannah, thank you so much for that permission and the gift of your knowledge and your digging and your observation.
1: Uh, I love that so much. And in fact, I'm going to carry the way you articulated that with me into the rest of the day. And my mantra, which maybe your fried listeners can adopt too, is do it awkward, but do it anyway.
0: Do it awkward, but do it anyway. Perfect place to end. Until next time, fried fam. Ain't going to burn ourselves out no more. Ain't going to burn ourselves out no more. Got each other on our side, plus all the folks at Fried, the Burnout Podcast, with Kate Donovan.